Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. So glad you're with us for the Friday edition of the Three Martini Lunch, brought to you today by the Headspace app. We've got good, bad, and crazy martinis for conservatives today. And Jim, we are now less than a month, well less than a month, before those critical Senate runoffs for both of Georgia's Senate seats. And we haven't spent a lot of time on Purdue versus Ossoff. We've spent more time talking about the long list of weird comments from the Democratic candidate, Raphael Warnock, in the other race. He's up against Kelly Leffler. Uh, we've talked about his comments on uh, you can't be in the military and serve God. He's had other issues related to guns. Uh, and now we've uh, apparently found out that he gave a 2016 sermon comparing Benjamin Netanyahu to George Wallace. This is courtesy of the Free Beacon. Warnock likened Netanyahu's stance opposing a two-state solution for Israel and the Palestinians to Wallace's ardent segregationist views. This is originally according to Fox News. Uh, Warnock told his congregation that the Israeli prime minister may well say, occupation today, occupation tomorrow, occupation forever, echoing the Democratic Alabama governor's call for segregation now, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever. Warnock, who has been dogged by accusations that he tolerates anti-Semitism, also said that true democracy is incompatible with the current system in Israel. Quote, if you don't have a Palestinian state, you cannot have a Jewish democracy. That state will either be Jewish or it will be a democracy. If you do not have a Palestinian state, you will have to have apartheid in Israel that denies other citizens, sisters, and brothers citizenship. So... Jim, uh, the differences between the two situations are pretty stark. I don't remember uh, blacks in Alabama or anywhere else uh, believing that uh, the other people around them didn't have a right to exist as a nation. So uh, what do you make of uh, Warnock's comments here? And, and keep in mind, he called Jesus a Palestinian too. So uh, there's, there's something pretty deep in his attitude towards Israel. Yeah, Greg, I, I, what I take from this is that Kelly Loeffler really has no excuse for not winning. Right. Georgia is not as red as it used to be. You're having very unique circumstances. No doubt the Democrats are going to be dumping all their money and resources. Biden's going to do a rally there. You know, no doubt, I'm sure Kelly Loeffler feels like the media is biased against her. Look, if you're a Republican, the, me the media is going to be biased against you. You just have to be ready for that. You cannot run a campaign and say, well, we would win as long as the media is never too tough on us. That's just not going to fly in the modern era. You have to be prepared for that. And there is no shortage of material about Warnock. And, and we, we had commented on this podcast before um, how much self-control it must have taken. Uh, the Loeffler campaign, the Georgia Republican Party, uh, all of the various, you know, supporting 527 groups and related interest groups and all that stuff to hold their fire until Warnock was one of the, was the Democratic nominee. And then every single day, pretty much since election day, it's been this, or not every day, every couple of days, it's been this steady drip, drip, drip that in a normal political environment would probably doom a Democrat running for statewide office in Georgia. Now, obviously, this is not a normal political environment, and not least of which being that the president and some of the president's lawyers and not officially affiliated lawyers of the president, like Lynn Wood, and various other folks are running around insisting that the vote in Georgia was fraudulent, that the machines were hacked, that Venezuelans were behind it, et cetera, et cetera. 
And so they're simultaneously trying to send out two messages of you must go out and vote in these runoffs. Also, you can't trust the election results and the whole thing's rigged. That is less than ideal. That is uh, a, a contradictory message. Will it be enough to sink Republican hopes? I certainly hope not. I don't think so, at least not by itself. But look, if Kelly Loeffler does not win this race, um, some of this blame will go to the Lynn Woods and the, the Sidney Powells of the world. Some of the blame would go to the president. But by and large, I think we'd have to put most of the blame on Kelly Loeffler, that, that you know she was appointed to the job. There were some people who were not, well, she was not necessarily the first choice. She was, uh, she's very wealthy. She had the ability to sell funds, so money wasn't going to be an issue. You know, And she's running up against not quite Jeremiah Wright, but a guy who has praised Jeremiah Wright, who might be seen as the Georgia version of Jeremiah Wright. So if you can't beat that, go home. <laughs> this is this is this is about as good a circumstance as a Republican Senate candidate can possibly hope for in Warnock. And oh, by the way, I think it's, it it says something also intriguing that if there's a split decision, and you know, so to speak, and that Purdue manages to win, and that John Ossoff loses, perhaps because he looks way too much like the Pajama Boy and that ad from for Obamacare way back when, um, people will be asking themselves, all right, how did Kelly Loeffler? not beat this guy when you had all of this ammunition to paint him as an oh, extremist and anti-Israel and all these other views that would presumably not play well amongst a statewide electorate in Georgia. And uh, I would say two things here. First of all, uh, the damage control operation is underway, Jim, according to the Free Beacon. Linda Sarsour is coming to Warnock's defense. <laughs> Saying, quote, Warnock was absolutely correct. So I'm sure that uh, that'll help everything just uh, smooth right over. Also, if you're the Purdue campaign, and you know that John Ossoff is basically this cookie cutter Democrat who's just going to vote whatever way Chuck Schumer would want to. He doesn't really have any unique ideas of his own. He's not an Andrew Yang, for example, like we talked about earlier in the week. He's just going to do whatever the Democratic leaders tell him to. And you could say, oh, well, John Ossoff would vote uh, to lessen the Second Amendment. He would restrict freedom in all these other ways and, and bloat the government and, uh, and, and indoctrinate your kids through education. And, uh, you know, all the things we don't want the left to actually pursue. And so Purdue could throw out all those things out there. And then over in the Leffler versus Warnock race, you've got all these completely and thoroughly insane things happening. It might be a little bit hard to get a little traction, but hopefully the uh, offensive messaging is working in both races. We will see it. I'd like to see some polling in this race. Uh, no, I don't. No, I don't. <laughs> That's right. Polls don't measure things accurately. I mean, here's the thing. By the way, most of the polling we're going to get between now and January 5th, they're going to say it's a close race. And I think it is going to be a close race. Purdue beat Ossoff by about two, more than two percentage points. It was, you know, solid enough, but it was uh, less than 50%. And then you add up the Republican votes, you add up the Democratic votes in the other race, because there were a whole, you know, a whole gang of, of, of candidates running, um, you get, you know, roughly the same. So this is going to be close, barring some giant surprise, this is going to be close either way. So again, you know, Loeffler, no excuses. Now, the good news, Georgia voters, is that you're already more than halfway between original election day and runoff day. Uh, the bad news is you've still got quite a few days left before this is all over. Uh, in fact, you got close to four weeks, about three and a half weeks. So uh, you're going to need to uh, find a way to, to clear your head during that time. And maybe the Headspace app can help a little bit. Look, normal circumstances can be stressful. 2020 has taken that to the max. You need stress relief that goes beyond the quick fixes. And that's where Headspace might be able to help. Headspace is your daily dose of mindfulness in the form of guided meditations and an easy-to-use app. Headspace is one of the only meditation apps that's advancing the field of mindfulness and meditation 
through clinically validated research. Whatever your situation, Headspace can really help you feel better. If you're overwhelmed, Headspace has a three-minute SOS meditation for you. Need some help falling asleep? Headspace has wind-down sessions their members swear by. Headspace's approach to mindfulness can reduce stress, improve sleep, boost focus, and increase your overall sense of well-being. Our chief of operations at Radio America uh, is well familiar with Headspace. Uh, I have not a chance to look at it yet, but he says a lot of uh, of Radio America folks have used this uh, during a very stressful year. It's helped them to sleep better, to focus better, to just be in a better mood uh, with all the stress that's been happening this year. So Headspace is backed by 25 published studies on its benefits, 600,000 five-star reviews, and more than 60 million downloads. Uh, you deserve to feel happier, and Headspace is meditation made simple. Go to headspace.com slash martini. That's headspace.com slash martini for a free one-month trial with access to Headspace's full library of meditations for every situation. It's the best deal offered right now, so head to headspace.com slash martini today. Uh, Jim, before we get to the second martini, uh, I just wanted to get your thoughts real quickly on the fact that neither you nor I nor both of us were named Times Person of the Year this year. There's also a lot of consternation that it wasn't frontline medical workers. It was actually uh, Biden and Harris. So uh, I know we won back uh, about 15 years ago with uh, Time Magazine, (laughs) so we shouldn't get too greedy. But uh, anyway, I I thought we had a chance, but I guess not this year. Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of reasons to object to this. I, I, in a way, think about it, you know, the person of the year is, is often sometimes you know, also called like the newsmaker of the year. And time gets vaguer and vaguer about what its criteria is. And, you know, in the old days, it was very clear. It was the, pers- the single person who had the most influence over the news in a past year. And that's how you ended up with Hitler and Stalin and the Ayatollah Khomeini. And I, I suppose those probably weren't great for... Uh, for, for newsstand sales, people, ah, you know, I don't like those guys. But, you know, when you, when you say the Ayatollah Khomeini had the most influence over the news and world events in the past year, you're telling your readers something important. You know, you're, you're basically like, this was not a good year. This was a bad year. The world became a worse place, and it may have become a worse place because of Hitler, Stalin, the Ayatollah, whoever else you want to put in there. Year by year, and I guess the clearest, you know, 2001, Look, it's very hard to dispute that Osama bin Laden did not have the biggest influence on world events that year, even if you hate the guy and you're glad he's dead and, you know, he's a, you know, the, the, arguably the worst terrorist in world history. So, but they went with Rudy Giuliani, Rudy Giuliani, who had been the inspiring leader after 9-11. And they, that's fine, I guess, but it was kind of this, this turning point. Like, okay, we're not going to pick the person. We're going to pick the person who we think will help newsstand sales and who we can feel good about. And I don't think they've really picked anybody who's been notorious since then depending on your view of little Greta, I suppose. Um, <laughs> and then, you know, they've gone with the protester. They've gone, they get more and more generic. They get more and more uh, trying to capture a theme. I even think like the whistleblowers was kind of, you know, further stretching it further. Um, and so now I, I don't even spend that much time thinking about it or worrying about it. Um, but I think the, the argument of, of Time Magazine is that Biden's election is a bigger deal than the coronavirus pandemic. And I would argue, no, <laughs> I think the coronavirus pandemic is probably the biggest story since at least the, uh, the Great Recession, arguably since 9-11. Some people would say it's, it's probably the biggest public health problem we've had since the influenza pandemic of 1918. How you look at the world in this past year and say, no, no, that's not the biggest deal. The biggest deal is not just Biden. But Biden and Harris, who, by the way, like was, you know, uh, appeared to be campaigning in a closet somewhere for those last couple of weeks of the campaign. 
look, this, this is a very insular institution that doesn't really see the world the way everyone else does. What they mean is this is the person of the year who had the biggest influence on events inside Time Magazine's offices. <laughs> I look at it a little more cynically, Jim. I think that uh, Time Magazine and probably most of the mainstream media saw Donald Trump as a greater threat than the virus. So therefore, mm. uh, the fact that Biden is likely to be the next president, so they're, they're happier about that than actually defeating the virus. Uh, There's no vaccine for Trumpism, Greg. <laughs> That's how twisted these people are. All right, let's move on to our bad martini now, Jim. And there was a fake version of this story circulating around social media. So we want to make sure we get the accurate story here. Um, Of all the places to try to clamp down on gun rights, Texas would seem to be the last place you would want to do that to, uh, to create some traction. But nonetheless, that's what's happening. Let's go to click2houston.com has the story here. A bill seeking to modify the so-called Castle Doctrine in Texas is getting lawmakers riled up ahead of the legislative session that begins next year. The Castle Doctrine is outlined in the state's penal code. It gives people the right to use deadly force to protect their land or tangible, movable property. State Rep. Terry Meza, Democrat of Irving, filed House Bill 196 in early November, which would modify part of the code to require a person to be, quote, unable to safely retreat before they could use deadly force to protect their habitation or property. It would also remove robbery and aggravated robbery as crimes that could be legally stopped with deadly force by property owners. Vinny Leibowitz, a spokesman for Mesa, told the Associated Press that the bill deals only with situations outside the home, leaving intact Texas law relating to situations inside someone's own habitation. Uh, It basically says that uh, what the bill would do is would require a homeowner to exhaust the potential of safely retreating into their habitation before using deadly force in defense of themselves or their property, Jim. So as long as you have the opportunity to go cower and hide, uh, you can't use deadly force. Uh, This is not a defense of life, liberty, and property the way I remember it being defined. Is the official name of this act the Apparently You Can Mess With Texas Act? (laughs) You know, I, look, it's the introduction of a bill. I don't see this being passed. Uh, I don't see this being uh, uh, likely to become law. I don't see Greg Abbott signing it into law. I suppose you might have to worry about whether they try to stick this into some other, you know, funding bill or something like that. I don't think this will go very far. But by the way, like, if people, if there are, every once in a while you have a Democrat comes along and says, I'm not like those other Democrats. I'm different. I'm not, you know, I'm sure Beto O'Rourke wanted us to believe that he was different from all those other Democrats. Although if you looked at his positions, we're not different from the Nancy Pelosi wing of the party and, and uh, Chuck Schumer and, and all the rest. Cases like this, does, does every Texas Democrat support this? No. Every Texas Democrat can, if they don't come out and say, no, this is nonsense, you absolutely have the right to defend yourself. If you, you know, choose to break into somebody's house, you run the risk that the owner of that house might attempt to defend themselves with deadly force. Uh, in other related news, it's Texas. Everybody's <laughs> armed. <laughs> not everybody, but you know, a sig- there's a good chance that a Texas homeowner is neither going to be uh, unarmed nor going to be shy about using that particular firearm. So um, it, it's just kind of baffling to see this. Uh, I expect it'll go nowhere. But the fact that you know this, this legislator chose to introduce it, thought it was a good idea, and apparently, you know, so far hasn't seen much of a backlash. Oh, okay. I guess from, from Republican lawmakers and such, but the fact that their colleague, Democratic colleagues could not say this lawmaker 
ixnay on the uh, Asyl Doctrine A. Uh, we don't want to, you know, this is not where we want to stand as a party. This is not an idea that other people support. You're making us look like a bunch of anti-gun lunatics and pro-crime lunatics. Um, that's a little bit of an ominous indicator for Texas for the years to come. I saw the story yesterday that Biden even said uh, somewhere that, uh, that the defund the police campaign uh, was used to beat the heck out of Democrats in, in 2020. So keep coming up with the stupid, stupid ideas, Democrats. We, we welcome that as long as they don't pass. Hi, I'm Sarah Carter. On every edition of the Sarah Carter podcast, I say we're taking back the story. And that's exactly what we have to do. Whether it's the Russia hoax, the relentless attacks on President Trump pretending Antifa doesn't exist, or covering up for the repressive Chinese government, the mainstream media isn't interested in the truth. It's up to us to uncover the truth and share it with others. Please join me in taking back the story on the Sarah Carter podcast. Subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, let's move on to our crazy martini now, Jim. And it's a bit of a follow-up on yesterday uh, on the crazy martini, which was the New Yorker piece talking about how California Senator Dianne Feinstein has allegedly been slipping cognitively for the past several years. And now suddenly it's this is the time that she really needs to step down for the good of her state and the good of the Senate and so forth. But as we've said, Jim, the timing on this is really curious. First, she said nice things about Lindsey Graham at the Barrett hearing. She even gave him a hug. Uh, she mentioned that she would not support killing the filibuster to pack the court or move any other majorly progressive ideas through the Senate if the Democrats were to get control. And now we see another reason for the curious timing for this push, courtesy of Los Angeles Times editor Erica Smith. See, uh, assuming Kamala Harris is sworn in as vice president of the United States on January 20th, there's going to be a vacant seat in the U.S. Senate. And the decision to fill that seat is going to fall to the illustrious Gavin Newsom, the governor of California. And then the next senator for that seat will be up in 2022 if they decide to run again. But the problem in California is, is that uh, black Democrats say they should have one of their people uh, appointed to the seat. And the Latinos say they should have one of theirs. You know, they've waited too long for their turn at California Senate representation. So here's what Erica Smith writes. So what's a governor who loves to talk about equity to do when faced with this phalanx of qualified candidates of color? Here's a thought. We should help him out by urging Dianne Feinstein to step down early preferably before the next Congress, so that California will have two open seats in the U.S. Senate instead of just one. While it's not the easiest solution to Newsom's political problem, it is the right solution. Representation does matter, and the more I listen to Black and Latino leaders demand it on behalf of a state that is becoming more diverse every year, the less I understand why our senior senator is still in office blocking progress. I don't know, Jim, maybe because the voters sent her back there in 2018 when they had the chance to, to uh, send her home. But uh, what do you make of this ongoing thing? We see it with every pick from Biden, especially if it's a woman or a minority. That's the headline of who got the job in the cabinet or, or somewhere else in the administration. And now this effort to check all these demographic boxes is leading to a major conundrum rather than just, you know, picking the best person for the job. You know, Greg, I, I'm going to get on a little bit of a rant here about California. But before I begin, I just, I'm going to refer to Gavin Newsom quite a bit. Every time I say Gavin Newsom, listeners, I want in your head for you to hear the phrase, Kimberly Guilfoyle's ex-husband. <laughs> because he is, which is weird enough. And just think about the two directions their lives have gone on. But listen to this whole podcast. But afterwards, if you feel like Googling, in August 2004, Harper's Bazaar did this profile on the dashing young mayor of San Francisco and his wife at the time, Kimberly Guilfoyle, 
formerly of Fox News, currently, I believe, attached to Donald Trump Jr. And the headline of that profile was the new Kennedys. There's a lovely picture of them on a rug. And I just just think that just how weird California politics can get and how it's managed to get even weirder since then. So, yeah, so there, there are a lot of reasons I don't like Kamala Harris. There's a lot of reasons I think she did not succeed as a presidential candidate. But I, I do think you can make the argument that being a rising star in California politics and having the traits that are required to succeed in California politics are not the same as what it takes to succeed everywhere else. Every state is different. Every state's political culture has its own little quirks. We've all heard the jokes that Iowans and New Hampshires won't support a presidential candidate until they've met them at least five or six times. You know, California, it's a big state, lots of cities, lots of people. doesn't work that way. So it's entirely coalition politics and it's entirely coalition of special interest politics. And some of it is ethnic politics, you know, the blacks and the Hispanics and the Asians and and this, that, and the other. But it's also like Silicon Valley. It's also Hollywood. It's also the farmers, even though they always seem to get the short end of the stick, uh, the parts of the country that uh, the Devin Nunes represents and such. Um, up north, you got a lot of crunchy environmentalists. Uh, down south, you're much closer to the border. It's, it's a big, diverse state. And what it takes is taking care of all of these little special interests and making sure that this group is getting this much and the unions are getting that much. And, and it's, you know, this, this is ultimately what it takes to succeed in, in uh, politics in California. And I think the results speak for themselves, that if California didn't, because you know, people talk about how terrific California's economy is doing. Silicon Valley is a really nice thing to have for job creation. Silicon Valley, uh, you know, generally, you know, no matter the state of the economy nationwide, Silicon Valley generally thrives because tech and innovation most of the time is going to work just fine. Uh, The Central Valley and all the agriculture. Look, if you have some of the best farmland in the entire world, that's going to work well for you. Wine country. um, Beautiful weather year round. If you've got all the tourism attractions that they have, all of that stuff is going to work really well for you. And that's going to paper over the problems of high taxation and a lot of regulations and local uh, zoning codes that restrict building big buildings that house lots of people so that real estate prices go through the roof in San Francisco and certain parts of LA and stuff like that. Um, The U.S. Navy making its main West Coast port in San Diego. That helps a lot for your, your economy and such. So because of this, you, you, the, the, the entire mentality becomes we need to have, you know, well, I need to make sure my group gets their slice of the pie. And it's very interesting to see who succeeds at this and who doesn't succeed at this. I think you can say that in the last two decades or so, that has become the operating function of how California works. Probably the last chance for serious reform was uh, Otto Schwarzenegger. Uh, and, and, you know, within a couple of years, it was clear that the state legislature was going to oppose everything he was going to do. And they weren't really willing to do the hard work and they certainly weren't willing to replace who was in the state legislature. So Arnold, you're to the left. Um, And you end up with a guy like Gavin Newsom being the governor of the state and certainly the most powerful figure in the state right now, formerly the mayor of San Francisco. And it's just kind of this oddity that, you know, if you look at Gavin Newsom's background, he, if, if he were any more of a spoiled wasp, he'd he'd be, uh, have come over on the, on the Mayflower. His, uh, Family is close to the Getty family, as in the Getty family, uh, invested in like 10 of his 11 businesses. All of his wealth basically comes from, you know, other, uh, this particular one. And I, I came across this column in the Sacramento Bee when Newsom was winning the primary to be governor back then. And it was from Marcos Britton, who, who I assume preferred one of the other candidates, but he said, it may, take future, it may take future social scientists to explain why, 
current California voters were so willing to give this guy a pass on all the things we know about him. The 50-year-old lieutenant governor and former mayor of San Francisco is the living embodiment of privilege, and people seem to be okay with that. And now at this moment, Greg, we are hearing people saying that Gavin Newsom should not, should not just appoint one senator in the state, he should appoint both senators representing his state. And of course, by giving them incumbency, giving them a leg up into being these senators for California for as long as they wish, because they sure as heck aren't likely to lose a general election now, are they? No, no. And see, the problem is, uh, first of all, obviously, this, the knives are out for Feinstein, even if she is uh, cognitively impaired at this point. And whether or not she should stay in office, it, it's clear that there's an agenda there. Now, Jim, I know, at least I'm pretty sure, that there is not a recall provision for U.S. senators like there is for governor of California. If there was, I might be a little more open to that because uh, one of the most enjoyable farces of politics in the last 20 years was, of course, the Gray Davis recall and then the cavalcade of bizarre characters who uh, ended up running for governor from Gary Coleman to Larry Flint to, uh, I mean, just about everybody under the sun who wanted their 15 minutes of fame. Ultimately, Schwarzenegger, uh, according to uh, legend, uh, changed his mind in the waiting room of The Tonight Show when he was going to say he wasn't going to run and then he ended up running and winning. I like to remind California voters, you could have had Tom McClintock for the rest of that uh, Gray Davis term, potentially. I think that might have gone a little better, although Schwarzenegger, as you said, did try to be uh, fairly conservative at the beginning until it was clear from the voters and the legislature it wasn't going to happen. As long as there's no recall, I think we should just uh, keep things as they are, unless Feinstein decides on her own not to stay there. But uh, it does bring back warm and fuzzy memories of just how chaotic that was. Yeah, in a very isn't it weird how like I'm sure at the time we thought that was crazy that it was this it was like a circus. Oh my goodness, Greg! Will politics ever do anything wilder or crazier than that? <laughs> and now we look at that as the the good old days, and we wish we yeah, I don't know about you, I genuinely wish that more people in Washington had the dignity, the focus on policy, and I think just the simple eloquence of Arnold Schwarzenegger. It's a sliding scale, Jim. It's a sliding scale, uh, apparently. So uh, anyway, fun way to head into the weekend. Let the identity battles continue in California. They've been going there for a long time, and they're not going to stop anytime soon. We'll see what uh, Newsom does to try and appease everybody. Jim, see you on Monday. Have a good weekend. See you Monday, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. Uh, don't forget to subscribe to the Three Martini Lunch podcast. Also, we are very grateful for your kind reviews and your five-star ratings. Remember, you can get us on those home devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch podcast. Have a fantastic weekend, and please join us Monday for the next Three Martini Lunch.